turn to First Peter 2 for our study this morning. Now, the last point we made was in verse 9. So I actually want to start in verse 9. And it was the great privilege to be the Lord's announcer. It says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaiming Christ, the privilege of being that proclaimer. I love the picture of that. Sort of a here comes the king. There he is. I want to tell you about him. I want to point him out to you. That's him. We talked about the idea of this was announcing the heroic acts of Jesus when he walked on this earth and is leading up all the way to his work on the cross. And that is what it is to be the announcer of him. Now that's important. But listen, what really makes for God's kind of announcer is what's in verses 11 and 12. I think part of the problem, if you ever uh, go to like either Reno or even here in Fallon, I guess we have this same deal. And you ever go by and you see those people with their little megaphone deals and it always feels like they're screaming at you? You know, kind of, you know. Uh, and even sometimes they might even be saying good things. I mean, they might be proclaiming, hey, Jesus is Lord and and he died for your sins, and, and all that's true. Have you ever wondered why, even as a believer, it's so hard for you to be around that? Why it's just kind of like, kind of makes you go a little bit, you know, like that? One of the reasons why is because of what we have right here. You don't know. You might be able to hear something that they're saying, but you have no clue who they are. You don't know their life. You have no clue if this is like, remember when Jesus told the demon, be quiet, even though the demon was saying true things about him. Because he didn't want a worthy message to be coming out of an unworthy vessel. There are talkers and there are doers. One person once said, your life is so loud, I I can't hear what you're saying. There are people that say, but they don't do. There are people that do things, but their message isn't clear. Peter says, God saves us to be both. He saves us to be clear announcers and powerful appliers. Those that preach and those that practice. Now with that, let's put our entire text before us. And I'm going to read verses 11 through 20. So make sure you have your Bibles. Make sure your Bibles are open. And let me read verses 11 
through 20 for you. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now, the thing in this section that opens it all up, if you would look back for a moment, is there at verse 15. Take a look at it. He says that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. That by doing right, you may make people quiet. You can quiet them down. Now, who are the foolish men? The foolish men are the unbelievers, the non-Christians. Why are you trying to silence them? You're trying to silence them so they will hear your message. What silences them? Kind of work, work with this, law, this reasoning through here. According to this verse, it's just doing right. It's doing right. You know how it is. Sometimes if you're talking, you're really not what? Listening. How do you get them to stop talking and to just listen? Do what's right. Your life. Your life will do that. How you live. And so from verses 11 through 20, it is all about censoring critics and captivating converts. Censoring, making them silent, captivating, catching their attention, getting them to see something that they don't normally see that they can connect to your message. That's what this section is about, verses 11 through 20. And so we're talking about people that criticize Christianity. Today, we're not in a shortage of those kinds of people. There are a lot of people that have a lot of things to say negatively about Christianity. Now, how 
do you censor people that criticize the gospel, that criticize Christianity and its message? He says, by doing right. Just live right. By living right, and then you get to the end of verse 12, and it's evangelism, and that tells us that the greatest influence then on evangelism is how we live our lives. The truth becomes believable when the life can be connected to it. That's Peter's point. John MacArthur put it this way, quote, The single greatest tool then of our Christian testimony and of evangelism is doing right. It is how you live, end quote. Some of us maybe get concerned about saying the right thing. You know, oh, if I'm in a situation, you know, I just want to be able to say the right thing or whatever. Well, the most important thing is just live the right way. And then continue to grow in how to say the right thing, right? And what that means is that we have the opportunity to have an impact on our country. We, we, we have the opportunity to have great influence in our community for the gospel of Christ. You have people today saying that Christianity is you know, too rigid and is uh, too narrow and that it is too limiting and it doesn't allow for lots of views and alternatives. That it takes away our personal expressions of who we are and tries to force us to be people that we don't want to be to to you know genders that we don't want to have and marriages that we don't desire and it tries to keep us from living naturally and being ourselves and being true to our passions and desires and so forth it's not hard to see what happens when a person or a group that claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ when that person lives immorally or criminally to see what impact that that has on the message of Christianity. I mean, why believe that message if it has no power to make us truly good, right? That's what I think that the that's where the, I think the criticism is at. So much of it. Why believe that message if it has no power to make us truly loving, truly pure, truly righteous, truly forgiving, truly faithful? Why believe it if it can't do that? That's Peter's point. That is that a pure life censors the critics and captivates the attention of skeptics long enough to turn them into converts. There's a connection of one to the other. And that is what Peter says here. I found this quote from MacArthur quoting Alexander McLaren. He was a Scottish preacher. And I've read read, uh, 
quite a few things over the years of Scottish preachers, John Knox being one of them, and there's a great book called uh, The Scottish Heritage, and it's all about this very thing. Uh, Ian Murray is the guy that uh, I believe wrote that book, but listen to this quote. Alexander McLaren, the world takes its notions of God most of all from the people who say that they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. In fact, they see us, they only hear about Jesus Christ. End quote. They see us, they're only hearing about, we are the Jesus that they know. We're the Bible that they know. And that's putting it out there. There's a real vulnerability with us, isn't there? In fact, you come across verses like this, and in some senses it's quite intimidating to know that the great impact of the gospel is actually through your life. It is very intimidating, very, puts me in a very vulnerable place to know that I can undo something that maybe somebody else is trying to do. You got a person that's sharing the gospel with somebody else, and I'm sitting over here living the opposite of what they're saying, and that undoes everything that, that, you know, that that person is saying to them. As I was reading, pouring over these two verses, I believe what influenced Peter the most was Jesus' own words from Matthew 5.16. He remembered what Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what Peter means in verse 12. Now, we need to back up and remember a few things. First of all, let's remember the context. Remember the context. Peter is writing this, and it's a group of of Christians, and um, it's a combination of both Jewish and Gentile um, people that have come to faith in Christ. And and you remember the pressure against them was great. The, the, The critics were real. Let me show you a few things here just so you can see this for yourself. Look at chapter 1 again, verse 1. Um, They're scattered, he says. Now, why are they scattered? They are scattered from all the pressures from unbelievers against them, against the Christian message, against the the Christ-following direction. They, they, They didn't like it. They... They are, are, maybe they're insulting them. Maybe they're mocking them. Maybe they're humiliating them. They're coming down on them. They're being persecuted. And he really gives you a picture in chapters 3 through 5 of that very thing. Chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. In other words, 
they were the type of sufferings that Peter had to say, rejoice in them. Sufferings that made them want to get down to hit the eject button. And then in chapter 5, I mean, you get to the very end that he's still talking this way after verse chapter 5, verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ is going to establish you and so forth. Now, what kind of suffering is he talking about? First Peter 2, verses 11 through 20, the kind that made you want to change, to fit into society. He saved you, he changed you, and now you're tempted to conform to society. You feel like you're, as long as you're following Christ, like you're a little bit on the strange side of things, And you don't want to be too strange to them. And so you conform to society. In other words, pressure from the culture, pressure from the world that said, hey, you need to fit in. Pressure that says, hey, don't be a weirdo, right? Don't be that one that that stands out and people say, whoa, what is that? It is the culture that is telling you that you need to conform, that you need to tolerate and accept and have an open mind to other views of truth. And that's why we have our theme there at the very top of your notes, grace-driven living in the face of a suffering-pressured life. That's what Peter is writing to. Those are the people that he's writing to. So what's the answer? First, remember what you have in your salvation. And that was chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, right? That you have, It's really going to help you if you remember the spiritual advantage you have. All the pieces of God's goodness and blessing that he has given you in salvation. And what Peter says is if you commit yourselves to be faithful to all that you have in Christ and to live it out, you're going to have profound kingdom impact on the lost. You will. You will. And so maybe the first thing for you to do is to go back into chapter 2 in verses 4 through 10 and remind yourselves of all those amazing privileges that we have as believers. You live that out and you're going to have kingdom impact on the lost. How so? Because you'll censor what they say about you and convert the ones that see your life, that see the shine from how you live. And what they're really seeing is... Jesus Christ himself. You remember we showed you that at the very end, that it's just all Christ? His life living through you. You know, one of the saddest things that could be said would be if a person refused to come to this church because of how we lived. And I'll tell you, I've heard it before about other churches. You know, I I can't believe so-and-so goes to that church. I'll never go to that church. That guy goes to that church. 
that lady goes to that church. I didn't take him to be a church-going guy. What an opportunity we have to have gospel impact here in Fallon. And I'll tell you this, it might be different than what you think. You'll notice that in, in this section, he doesn't call you to go out on a corner and get a megaphone and start screaming at people. He doesn't do that. There's a different approach that our Lord takes. And I hope you see it. And the key, it's how we live. It's our character. It's our lives. It's our integrity. So Peter's talking about the impact of how we live when the heat is turned up on us. How we live when the critics speak out. MacArthur really summed up exactly how I was seeing this section from verses 11 through 20, so I'll let you kind of hear what he says there. Listen, there are three perspectives from which Christians can look at their obligations. Number one, strangers, verses 11 through 12. Number two, citizens, verses 13 and 17. And three, servants, verses 18 through 20. And then I might add, these are my own words, that verses 21 to 25 are the example of all of that in the life of Christ. Him showing you all of what he says in verses 11 through 20 can be fit right into the person of Jesus. And he shows us. So that's where we're going. Three spheres to live out our lives and have influence. As strangers before the world, as citizens before the nation, and as servants before our workplace. Strangers before the world, citizens before the nation, and servants before our workplace. Now to give you sort of a flavor of this impact, Peter's even going to, in chapter 3, show us what it looks like when we live out the gospel in our homes. The godly wife before the ungodly and probably unbelieving husband in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. What that looks like. He's driving this home. I mean, the principles of verses 11 through 20 are so very practical for even our own marriages. So we should pay attention to this. We can extend that influence to the educational arena, to the sports arena, to the recreational arena, and even our own jobs. The world needs salt and light. And that's what we are as followers of Christ. All right. So for this morning, let's look at living as strangers. Let's talk about our commitment to stranger living. That's what I've titled this, Stranger Living. Because he's talking about us being strangers and how to live like that. Okay, the influence of it. Now let's look once again at verses 11 and 12, and then let's break it, break it down. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from 
fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, there are two pretty straightforward points here. One is an inward point, and the other is outward. One is character, the other is conduct. One has to do with who you are, the other has to do with what you do. Discipline and demeanor, or you could say deeds. Now, the starting point is on the inside. That's where we always move when we talk about a response to the gospel, a response to sound doctrine, from the inside out. Oftentimes, we run too quickly to saying, okay, here's what you do. Do this, do this, do this, and don't do this, this, this. We love, we love rules. We love lists. We love the, the linear kind of deal here. Just tell me what to do, and I'll do that thing. But what Peter does is he starts at the very inside of things at a place that you probably might be left with going, but how do you do that? And so in a sense, verse 11 is sort of the the mental side of things that has has to be there before the attitude that has to be there before you can get out and start doing anything. You have to make a commitment to this internal process first. That's why, by the way, we don't move too quickly to rules. Sometimes in the home, especially, you have to get to the rules. But be careful. If, if, if you can't draw a string from the rules to this first point that we're going to make that has to deal with the heart, the rules won't help. In fact, you'll either find uh, that person rebelling and kicking against the goads or trying to live by those rules and making you and I think that they're, right? Everything's okay. It's all good. It's shiny on the outside when the heart is far from the Lord. Jesus said, clean the inside of the cup first. All right, first point. Point number one, the inward discipline. The inward discipline. What Peter's talking about is living a godly life on the inside and then living a godly life on the outside. This is no different than Matthew 15 or Mark 7, where he said it starts on the inside, heart first. In Mark 7, the defiling life comes from the inside out, not the outside in. Let me say it a different way. Your environment didn't make you sin. It didn't make you a criminal. Your environment didn't make you make bad decisions when you were in high school. You understand that? 
Oh, if we could just get them out of that neighborhood and put them into a different neighborhood, they would be different people. Really? One of the things I learned just before moving, this would be 23 years ago. 23 years ago, I moved to Fallon. And of course, you know, you're doing research before coming and trying to learn as much as you can. And this one popped out at me as... I don't know if this is still the ratio or stats, so things might have changed. Nevada, some of the highest ratio of teenage pregnancy. Churchill County, highest in Nevada. Okay, that tells me something here. It doesn't matter that we're rural. Sin is sin, and it finds you. So, smaller place, environment, nice, small town environment. That'll keep people from making bad decisions. That's not true. We start on the inside. Let's break this down. Look at verse 11. He starts with, Beloved. Peter loves to use that word eight times in his two letters. What's he telling his Christians? He starts with beloved. He's telling them, you're loved by God. I like that. You're all, he says, hey, church, you're loved by God. Believers, you're loved by God. I mean, he sees the critics. He knows you face trials and pressure in your life. And I need to remind you, Peter says, that God loves you to be reminded of that. And then he says, I urge you, Paracolo, I urge you, I, I call you alongside me. This is urgent. This is, this is vital. This is critical. Absolutely essential to evangelism. Same word was used in Romans 12. One, remember that? I urge you by the mercies of God to present yourselves a holy and living sacrifice. I urge you, he says, to look inside. You must. What are you looking inside for? For what? Well, before he gets to that, he says, as aliens and strangers. These are two fascinating words. He already called us aliens back in chapter 1, verse 1, and he wasn't meaning of the extraterrestrial kind. Why is he saying this again? Well, he's saying, you don't belong here. He's reminding them and us, hey, don't, don't forget you're an outsider, okay? As you go to look inside, look inside, but don't forget you're an outsider. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we're citizens of. The word is used to describe a foreigner. Now, when did this happen? John 15.19, because you are not of the world, Jesus said, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world is hates you. In other words, when I saved you, I took you out of 
There, there was a separation that happened. I took you out of the world and its system. I took you and I put you in this place as now a foreigner. Now you're an outsider. But catch everything that he is saying. He's saying in this world, but not of it, right? You don't belong. You're foreigners. You're just passing through, like the song, right? Citizens of heaven, not this earth anymore. Colossians 1.13, rescued from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. So he's always having to tell us, I took you out, I took you out. Not apart. Now, when he calls us an, an alien, but we also need to understand we're not illegal aliens, okay? Right? If I could use that analogy. Though we don't belong to it, but we do have the right to be here. Romans 13, we could be here, we're just not from here. We're living here, but this isn't our home. Now we can break this word down even more. Let's do that. Uh, Paroikos. Paroikos. In the Greek, it's a compound word. Para means alongside. Oikos is the word used oftentimes for house or home or household. Put it together. You have your house alongside the residents. You live alongside the people that belong to it. You're, you're not a resident, but you live right next to the residents of that neighborhood. That's the picture. You live alongside the people that belong there. You're allowed to live here. But you're not from here. I suppose it would be a little bit like the foreign exchange program that we have. You know, the foreign exchange program, oftentimes you see this in high schools where you'll see a student from another country and they're here. And you can tell by their accent or maybe by fact that they don't really understand, you know, the, you know, some of the things that you do when you talk and all that, but they're here and they get to do all the things that you do. Some of us live way too comfortably here, by the way. You live alongside the people that belong here. It's not our home. We're just living next to the people that belong to it. We have to remind ourselves of that all the time. Now that's actually the word alien. The other word is stranger. And that word stranger is a synonym. It it came to refer to a person who traveled from place to place to place, kind of like a, a nomad, a transient person. Some people are like that, you know, can't stay in one place too long or they they start to get antsy. And as I was thinking about this, I kept going to Hebrews. Remember Abraham? 
Hebrews 11.10, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. It's, it's as though Abraham was going around and he was being shown all these places, but what he had to keep telling himself, this is not my city, not my city, not my place. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, after living here so long here in Fallon, I'm all things Fallon. And sometimes it really scratches my head when, you know, you get people to come visit and say, what are you doing in Fallon? I said, well, why aren't you here? This is awesome. This is a great place to live. What are you, what are you talking about? But then I have to remind myself, oh, wait a minute. Not my place. It's not my place. I'm looking for the one that God has built like Abraham. Moses said in Hebrews 11.25, he would never allow himself to get comfortable in Egypt. Not my home. And Then you have this in Hebrews 13.14, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. You say, what city is he talking about? We don't know. He's not talking about a city, really. He's saying whatever city you're connected to, we don't have a lasting city. We're seeking the city which is to come. And what you get in all of that is that Christians have always lived among unbelievers. In their neighborhoods, in their areas, in their sphere. And this is really helpful to me. You're never going to find the scriptures talking about life for the Christian like, like hermits. The Bible doesn't, there's no hermit talk in the Bible. Okay? You'll never find isolation. You won't even find the, you know, journeys to find yourself or, I don't know, you know, sometimes we have such weird reasoning. You say, hey, I just got to go out, go away in the desert and be alone and really with myself and kind of, you know, so I can really work things out and think things through. You know the problem with going out in the desert and trying to work things out to think things through? Guess who you take with you? Yourself, right? And the problem is you're going to probably start listening to yourself. Uh-oh, that could be a problem. It'd be more helpful if you were around somebody that actually could remind you of what this says, Right? It's always in the world, but not of it. And that's because the world is a system. It's not a place. In fact, in those three and four hundreds, in the early parts of the church, when they began to go into the wilderness to try to get away from the world, probably one of the biggest lessons they needed to learn is that the world never left them. Because it's a system, it's not a place. You can't get away from it. John eighteen thirty six, Jesus told Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. In other words, Christ and Christ followers are all strangers. And what he starts with is telling us you have to remember we're strangers. Our kind of living is stranger living. 
We're not at home here. So what's stranger life look like? It starts on the inside. Don't compare your life to this world. We're strange to this world. We are not like it at all. Let me say this here. I might be saying this strongly, but I mean it. Nothing the world says is helpful for our spiritual living. Nothing. Can I say that again? Nothing the world says is helpful for our spiritual living. Nothing. The only help that dear Abby gives to me is entertainment. That's it. It's not helpful. So, well, but there's a little bit of nugget of wisdom in there. Listen. Every once in a while, they repeat what's in Scripture. And it sounds wise. Right? You understand what I'm saying? God gives us everything that we need to know. And if you doubt that, just meditate on Second Peter 1, 3 and 4, or James 3, verses 13 and 17. He tells us where the source of our wisdom is from. Nothing the world says is helpful for our spiritual living. Notice what the focus is for us. Inside. And there's a discipline to the inward. Look at verse 11. To abstain from fleshly lusts. What's abstain mean? Abstain means to get away from something. Literally, the word meant to push it away. Distance yourself from. It's not that hard of a word to to understand. I mean, get away from it. What? Fleshly lusts. See, what are fleshly lusts? Strong desires from this body of flesh. Notice I didn't call it the old nature. We don't have that. Logically, when a person becomes a Christian, the, it says in Romans 6, I think it's verse 6, that the old nature is crucified. And when God saved us, when regeneration took place, He made us new. He gave us newness of life, new desires. But you need to understand this. Sin remained in this thing called the body of flesh. So we have this body of flesh, and sin Still remains there. Romans, I think it's chapter 7, verse 14, says the, the very same thing. That's why Galatians 5 calls it a conflict. Because you have this unredeemed flesh. And I'll tell you, beloved, I mean, there's this battle on the inside, and it goes on all the time. Constant battles, and it's the constant battle with lust. Don't believe the person that says, ah, I have finally learned how to have victory over lust. All right, wait five minutes, right? There is a constant battle with lust. Admit it. That's your first best step. Constant. I don't want to know if you battle with lust. I want to know how you are. That's what the Lord is saying. The true believer battles at that level. I'm always reminded 
that one of the last commands that Paul gave in, in, in one of his last letters was this one to Timothy, a young pastor, probably in his 40s, and a guy whom Paul trained up. And we have no reason to believe that Timothy was spiritually doing poorly. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, Now flee youthful lusts. Sometimes people read that, Oh, Timothy, come on, get with it. Being a dirty dog or whatever, get with it. No, he's actually trying to honor, honor Christ and obey him. But he needs to be reminded out of lust. Don't forget, Timothy. Keep fleeing. Keep fleeing. Always an issue. And by the way, it doesn't always mean sexual lust. I'm going to show you that here in a moment. Any kind of lust. Now, in calling for us to be like that in 1 Peter 2, 11, he's really calling for us to look inside, isn't he? I mean, that's where the lusts are. Deep inside. Don't just try to go to the externals. Go deep where the lusts are. I mean, let's not forget. Let me, it's difficult today. I mean, in this day and age of pornography everywhere, lust gets awakened everywhere. And if it's not pornography, it's people trying to shove food, you know, in all of its different varieties of ways at us. And if it's not any of those things, it's, other things like alcohol or whatever that just appeals to the flesh. It's a, it's a serious challenge for all. But listen, get disciplined there for many reasons, but especially for this reason. Because we have a gospel message that the lost needs. Do it for that. Censor critics and get the attention of the lost. You know why? Because they have no power over their lusts. But we do. Romans 6, that's what he says. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body and to obey its lusts. You can't say that to the unbeliever, but you can say that to a Christian because he's been given the Spirit of God who, make, who empowers him to be able to turn away from sin. So if, if lust is bigger than sexual lust, what are fleshly lusts? Listen to Galatians 5.19. And by the way, there are quite a few different lists throughout the Bible. I'll, I'm just giving you one of them. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. That's Paul's way of saying, I could go on and on and on, right? Fleshly lusts, then, are the craving of all those things. 
You get a similar list in Colossians 3. You can find a similar list in Ephesians 4. And then in Galatians 5.24, he tells us, this is our new character. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's our, that's our position. Now that's a positional statement, but the reason why he gives the positional statement after saying walk by the Spirit is because he is saying, don't forget who you are in Christ. Constantly always deal with that because of who you are in Christ. We stand in the crucified position when it comes to fleshly lusts. Take me back to the cross when I bump into lust. See, that's, that's, that's what that is. So we live with this godly tension, this tug of war, if you will. We crave the milk of the word. We do, First Peter 2, 1. I mean, all of us, we loved hearing, when we got to that part in First Peter 2, we loved hearing it, crave the milk of the word, right? Yes. But we also have these lusts that get through the gateway of the body of flesh. And that's why he says, abstain. Why? Look at verse 11. Which wage war against the soul. What wages war? Your lusts do. There's a war that is going on right inside of you. It's happening whether you fight or not. Paul was very familiar with this waging war, Romans 7. So many see this conflict that Paul talks about in Romans 7. And they say, well, you mean, look at poor Paul, immature, dealing with his immaturity as a Christian battling lust and sin and stuff. What a, I mean, that guy just got to grow. No, actually, it's quite the opposite. It's Paul at the height of his spiritual maturity. Romans 7.15, For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. The problem with so many people that call themselves Christians that they, is that they actually don't hate their lusts. That's a problem. And that would give us pause to say, wait a minute. If you know the Lord, you hate the lust. But I am doing the very thing I hate. What is that very thing that you hate, Paul? Where my lusts want to take me. And I'm doing those things. Paul says, verse 21, I find that the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, that's the battle. There's this battle, this tension, verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I I agree with scripture. I agree with the Lord now who reigns in my heart. I agree with him when I feel that weight, when I feel like, "Uh uh-oh, I shouldn't go there, or "Uh uh-oh, I shouldn't look, or "Uh uh-oh, I shouldn't say that, or "Uh uh-oh, I shouldn't be doing this. I agree with him, but I see a different law in the members of my body. Listen, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. By the way, this war here in verse 11, 
He says it's a, a, a war against the soul. What is the soul? The soul is the real you. It's the entire being of who you are. And it's all stirred up by fleshly lust. Now let's go back to verse 11 here, which wage war against the soul. James said the same thing as Paul in James 4.1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members, your soul, that is. You lust and do not have. That's the problem with lust, right? It wants to get it. It covets. It sees it. It wants it. It's got to have it. Wish they wouldn't have named that, you know, portion of ice cream. Got to have it, okay? And I said, oh, man. It's kind of a reminder to me, right? Like, oh, oh, better go and just like it or, or love it, you know. You lust, you know, all the writers have that question. All of them. Where does lust come from? Why is lust always a pain at the deepest level? And, you, you know, you have to know a little something about this word war, I think, to, to, to understand that. Listen to um, Lenski. He's, a, he's the uh, Lutheran, uh, early 1900s Lutheran, Lutheran uh, commentary guy. The verb used is not polymane, to war, but stratuistai, to engage in a campaign and personifies these fleshly lusts which intend to capture the soul in order to enslave and to destroy it, end quote. Now, the first word is the usual word, and it refers to wars that have soldiers and describes fighting from both sides in the usual way. But the word that Peter uses is similar to the word strategy, and it might even be where we get our word strategy from. There's a campaigning that happens, a allure, an enticement. James 1, lust dangles it out there to make it seem attractive. And it reasons with you. The regular word had to do with a one-time battle. This one has to do with the mental strategies behind it. mental strategies that go into it, volleying that could go on for a while with no end in sight. So we're talking about assaults that come in a covert way, the kind that hide behind bushes. Disguised in wooden horses like a Troy. Peter is really concerned at this level. He comes back to it again in chapter 4. Listen to what he says in chapter 4. You can look at it for yourself. Verse 2, we are to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time is already past and sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, and so forth. Peter says, we have to wage war at that level. We have to focus on this inward discipline. And he says, uh, John says a similar thing in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, right? He says, so how do you deal with your lust as a discipline? 
How do you do it? Beloved, this is so important. The place to start is here first. The world hasn't seen this, and it has no idea how to deal with lust. The best they can do is call it an addiction and then send you to some group to make commitments that you're likely to break or replace with other addictive habits. That's the best. How do we do it? How do we deal with it? Galatians 5. Only one way. Walk in the Spirit. He tells us, actually. Walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You turn to the Holy Spirit to have control of your life. See, how, how do you do that, though? Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let it be at home in you. That's why you memorize scripture. That's why you, you, you meditate on it. Ephesians 5, you yield to the Holy Spirit. And then you do this other thing. You treat it like a war. A person is really following Christ. You see them... Sometimes you see a person with a scowl on their face. Don't just assume they're down in the dumps and they need to kind of get, you know, chippered up. Maybe if you're looking at a believer, they're at war. It's a good thing. Ephesians 6.10, you put on the armor of God. Romans 13.14, you make a plan to put on the Lord Jesus Christ each and every day. 2 Corinthians 10, you destroy every force, uh, fortress excuse me, raised up against the knowledge of God. Remembering that our spiritual weapons, are, excuse me, that our weapons are spiritual and, and, and not fleshly. 1 Timothy 6, you fight the good fight of faith. You, you turn it into a fight before the war can be waged against you. You make sure that your lusts know when you wake up in the morning, I'm coming after you. You take that approach and you will make yourself a serious stranger in this world. We look at lust differently than the world. F.B. Meyer says this, Lust is inordinate desire. The desire for too much of a good thing or for any of a bad one. Fleshly lusts are those which seek their gratification through the avenues of the physical nature with which God has endowed us. We are all provided with certain natural instincts and desires which have been implanted for right and useful purposes and are innocent and right when regulated by the will of God. But these natural appetites are constantly fretting against restraint, yearning for unlawful gratification, seething and foaming at the sea waves against a harbor bar. If you yield to them, if you love anything outside of the circle of God's will, if you follow your own wild instincts, irrespective of the self-restraint demanded by conscience, 
If you indulge any one side of your nature out of the due balance and equilibrium of the whole, if you allow an undue monopoly of taste or thought in one direction, then beware. End quote. So the inward discipline. Abstain from fleshly lusts. But stranger living is a second thing, and this one is a, a kind of a, a more obvious one. Point number two, the outward demeanor. And we'll just spend a couple minutes on this and be done. Here is the Holy Spirit. And he urges us to have discipline at that level. But he also urges for a certain kind of demeanor or conduct. This is the public side. The last one was private. You have to deal with lust at the private level. Listen, if you don't, then nothing that you do in the public will mean anything. But the purity pushes out a certain kind of outward demeanor. Look at verse 12. The outward conduct, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, what is that saying? Let's break it down a little quicker here. Behavior just means conduct. It's a manner of life, really. It's direction of life or quality of life, of actions, quality of your deeds, the things that you do out of conviction and practice. He says, keep your conduct excellent. What does the word excellent mean? That's the Greek word kolos. Kalos is uh, sort of like, uh, you know, in Hebrew you have the word hesed. And hesed is uh, the word sometimes translated love or mercy or compassion or grace. has this rich, wide meaning. Same thing with this word kalos. Kalos can be translated good, noble, lovely, fine, honorable, gracious, beautiful, pure, good, fair to look at, attractive. It's attractive in quality. Make sure your conduct stands out in the right way for the right reasons. Make sure it is attractive in the right way. All that discipline to be pure will push out conduct it is really attractive. It will. And what will that do? You know, you live that way among the Gentiles, literally among the ethnos. And that word always means pagans or unbelievers. I mean, you have to be around unbelievers long enough for them to see this quality about you, right? Why? So that the unsaved can see transformed life so they can see power from beyond stuff that you can't produce but that is there stuff that has to be divine character of that level not just love but a certain kind of love not just joy but a certain kind of joy and peace and excuse me and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control and so forth 
like I one person put it, there are no secret disciples. It's out there. And I've told people, you can't hide the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's this. Boy, I tell you what, when He gets a hold of your life, others are going to know it. Sometimes I feel like telling some people who are trying to convince me they're a Christian, can you please let the Holy Spirit know? Okay? It's not that obvious yet. He makes His presence known in your purity and in your actions. So the inner purity pushes out the outward fruit. Now, what will it accomplish? Why is this important? Verse 12. So that the thing they slander you as evildoers. They're not just saying you're annoying. They're not just saying you're kind of, you know, brash and you're just a little on the, you know, holier than thou. This is a little different than just saying you're holier than thou. The word evildoer was used of a person who deserves severe punishment, a real wicked person. He says, that's what they said about us, Peter. Peter says, that's what they say. Did you know that back then they accused Christians of some crazy things? I'm going to give you a little list here. They accused them of being cannibals because they spoke of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, John 6. They accused them of being immoral. All this affection toward one another, you know. There's got to be something wrong with those guys. They're always affectionate with each other. They accused them of ruining the economy, you know, affecting the business and trade and so forth. They accused Christians of being atheists. How about that one? You know why? Because you had all these Roman gods and Christians wouldn't worship any of them. And so they called them atheists. How are we supposed to handle accusations like that? Well, maybe you go out and you fight and you hire a bunch of lawyers and make a coalition to stand for your rights, right? Verse 12. That they may, because of your good deeds, in other words, your actions will have an impact on them. On the unbelievers. What impact? Verse 12. As they observe them and glorify God, in the day of visitation. Observe, he says, take it all in. What are they going to do? They're going to glorify God as believers or unbelievers. I believe what Peter is saying is that they will see the powerful life and conclude Jesus Christ is the way of salvation. And then they, then they will repent and turn to God through Christ Glorify God in that way. Say, how do you know that? Because the phrase in the day of visitation has two understandings. One is judgment, the other is blessed, the blessing of salvation. In the Old Testament, you see it used both ways. In the New Testament, it's used only of salvation. I believe that's how Peter's using it. Read it for yourself. In fact, let me give you the passages, and I won't quote them because of time, but Luke one sixty eight, 
Luke 7.16, Luke 19.44, they all tell us this very thing. The day of visitation is the day of where the Lord visits for salvation. All right, let's conclude. What's all this saying? He's saying that God will visit the unbeliever who sees the amazing transformed lives of Christians who live out the purity of their lives in such a way where all you can do is marvel at God and His glory and come to the conclusion, I have to have what they have. And when that happens, it's because God has saved them, right? Stranger living like that is what God uses to save people. And it is my hope and desire that this church body will be filled with stranger living. Let's pray. Father, we... uh, see what you say here, Lord. There's just great conviction about abstaining from fleshly lusts. I think there's great conviction, Father, because maybe some of us are convinced, we're convinced that we could maybe do it a few times, but then we just, we're back to it. And so I pray, Lord, you would help us to be those that wage war in this right way, Lord. And I pray, Lord, will you use it to have impact on this very community that we live in called Fallon. We want to be used for you this way. You might receive all the glory and that we can point people to you. Help us, will you please, Lord, to be this kind of church. In Jesus' name we pray.